glorious place. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, as we bow our heads before you, I pray that you would bless us and be with us. Speak to our hearts, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The sermon today is entitled, Don't Be Happy with Success. Don't be happy with success. Today in ministry, when it comes to church, we judge our success based oftentimes on numbers. Numbers. For example, how many church members do you have in your church? How many people attend your church on a given Sabbath? Oh, well, you know, we have, you know, 200 that come to our church. Uh, this is how many we have baptized and who are on the books. How many people went to youth day? Oh, youth day was full. It was packed. There was standing room only, you know, back when we used to uh, um, meet in person. But even today, how many people on the Zoom? Oh, there was 30. Oh, no, there was 80 people on that Zoom. Oh, man, we had over 100 people on Zoom. Oh, wow, man. The comments were just going crazy. It was great. We judge success all, all, all too often based on numbers. How many people were baptized at the end of the evangelistic campaign will tell us whether it was a successful campaign or whether it wasn't because the numbers indicate how successful it has been when it comes to online ministry when it comes to online work with with instagram how many followers do you have on instagram how large is your account how many people watch the Instagram live will tell us whether it was a good Instagram live or a bad Instagram live. How many likes do you have on Facebook? How many follows do you have on Facebook? Tells us whether it's a successful account or whether it's not a successful account. I remember hearing one speaker introduced and they were introduced with all their life's achievements. And then one of their achievements was, and they have a Facebook page with over 200,000 followers. How many subscribers do you have on YouTube? will tell you how successful your YouTube ministry is because this is how we gauge success. Who has the largest Adventist YouTube page and someone has 100 plus thousand subscribers and someone else has 200,000 plus and someone else has 300,000 plus and someone else has more than 500,000. Twitter, how many followers do you have on Twitter? Clubhouse, the new one that's kind of um, making the waves at the minute. How many, how many followers do you have on Clubhouse? How many people were in your room? Oh, man, were you in the SDA lounge last night? There were so many people in there. Success, numbers. We put the two of them together. In order to be successful, we've got to have numbers. And that's not just in ministry. It's in life as well. How much money do you make? What salary are you on? How many businesses do you own? How many degrees do you have? Do you have a bachelor's? And if you got one, why haven't you got two? Do you have a master's? If you've got one, why not two? Do you have a PhD? And if you've got one, why not have two? How many do you have? And we gauge success by all of these things. How many houses do you own? Oh, you need to get more than one. You've got to plan for, for the future. Have a couple of houses. How many do you have? How many cars do you own? Because if you can afford one and you can afford two, why would you settle for just having one car? Be successful. Have more. Numbers and success, they go hand in hand. How many countries have you visited? How many air miles have you collected? 
How many sermons have you preached? How many Bible studies have you done? How many people have you led to a point of baptism will determine if one Bible worker is more successful than another Bible worker because they had five or 10 people baptized in a given time period. Success and numbers, we put them together all so often so that our success is directly tied to numbers because numbers are something tangible. There's something that we can measure. There's something that we can put on a graph and see if it goes up or down. There's something that we can, we can judge results by. We're not so much interested in stories. We're not so much interested in human impact. We want to know the numbers. We want to know the numbers. When someone asks for an evangelistic report and someone stands up and says, well, let me show you a story of, of someone whose life was changed by the campaign. And, and yeah, 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 that's good. That's good. That's good. But let, what are the numbers? What are the numbers? And as a church, we're very good at counting them as they come in, but we're very poor about counting them as they go out. We're very good at the evaluation on the front end, but very poor at the evaluation on the back end. But be that as it may, we, we do like our numbers. We do like our numbers. The Messenger magazine here in the UK, our, our union magazine that, that is published, well, it used to be every two weeks, now it's every month, and it goes out on a monthly basis. And in the Messenger magazine, we like to put stories in the Messenger, but we put the stories and we often, we had a campaign and this is how many baptized. We did this event and this is how many came. We did this and this is how many came. We did this and this is how many came. Because we like numbers, success. But the sermon is entitled, Don't Be Happy With Success. Don't be happy with success. It's not what God is looking for. Don't be happy with success. On the 29th of March, 1946, Frederick Anthony Ravi Kumar Zacharias was born into an Anglican home. He grew up as a skeptic, and at the age of 17, he tried to kill himself by swallowing some poison. As he was lying there in a hospital bed, someone came by and they told his mother to read to him John chapter 14. And as his mother read to him John chapter 14, verse 19, because I live, you also will live. It helped to turn his life around. He emigrated, his family emigrated to Canada. He studied and got a degree and he started his life as a preacher. Uh, initially at that time, it was the Vietnam War. So he spent some time in Vietnam actually preaching to US soldiers and also to the Viet Cong soldiers. He got licensed by the Christian and Missionary Alliance in the early 80s and, and started his life as a, as a preacher. In 1984, he founded a ministry called the, the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and it was to pursue his calling as a classical evangelist in the arena of the intellectually resistant. That's a fancy word for saying he would preach the gospel in places where the gospel was not welcome. He would preach the, preach the gospel in places where people were resistant to the idea of God and Christianity. And he set about as his life calling to preach the gospel in the difficult places where the hard questions about of God are being asked. How can you prove God's existence? How do you know that there's a God of love when there's evil? How can you prove the presence of a creator when there doesn't seem to be any? How can you have a God of love in a world of sin and suffering? In 1989, he spoke at the Lenin Academy after the Berlin Wall fell. He spoke at Harvard. He spoke at Yale. He spoke at every prominent university, secular and Christian in the world, on every single continent, TV shows, 
radio shows, podcasts, and his digitally uh, produced sermons now in the digital mass media internet age spread like wildfire in the 1990s and 2000s and 2010s until hundreds of thousands and millions of people had heard the messages that he was speaking on a regular daily and weekly basis, leading to hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of people being convinced of the authenticity of the gospel and the faith that we have as Christians. He said that any faith system needs to be defined by four things. How you can explain your origin, how you explain the purpose of life, how you explain morality, and how you explain destiny, origins, morality, purpose, and destiny. And he would articulate that the Christian worldview is the only one that can articulately, coherently, logically, and, and rationally explain all four with no contradictions between them. I was going to say last year. But two years ago now, in 2019, I believe it was, though it may, may seem like last year to many of us, he passed away. He had a battle, short battle with spinal cancer, and he died. Now, before his death, there were some rumors. Actually, at his funeral, it was a huge funeral. There were hundreds, thousands of people who watched his funeral live streamed on YouTube all over the world. I forget how many. I think I joined a live stream when there was like 40,000 people watching the live stream, which before the, the ages of Corona and, and, and internet live stream was absolutely huge. And even in the age of internet Corona, uh, Corona, you know, live stream world, it is a huge number watching. Vice President Mike Pence attended his funeral amongst many, many, many other celebrities and, and, and musicians and people of, of renown across society. But after his death, things started to unravel a little bit. We started to hear of rumors. One lady was watching the funeral and seeing all this commotion and, and, and hoo-ha at the funeral about a man that she said had, had assaulted her. Things started to unravel. And rumors that they had been kept, they had kept a lid on prior to the funeral, prior to his death, now started to come out. It started to unravel. One thing led to another, and the rumors had to be investigated, and a legal investigation was launched. And in January or February of this year, the initial uh, January, the initial findings were released, and in February, the full findings were released and the contents were disturbing at best. Here was a man who fought his whole life against atheism. You could argue he lived a functional atheist life, meaning he lived a life where God was not real and God was not present in his private day-to-day -day life. It's a fancy way of saying he lived a double life. The details of his double life don't need to be repeated in this sermon, other than to say his conduct around women was wholly unsuited to that of a Christian, let alone a minister or a preacher of the gospel. Rape, inappropriate behavior, and all types of things have come out. Inappropriate images and all types of things have come out in the investigation. And people, many of them who, who, who followed this man, uh, you know, carefully uh, have their 
faith, their own faith struggle. How do I cope with this? But, but it also uh, begs the question, like, you know, how, how did this happen? The sermon is entitled, Don't Be Happy With Success. Don't be happy with success. You can have a very successful ministry. The ministry employed 200 people around the world. It raked in $7 million in donations every year. It was hugely successful. And I'm not, uh, when, when I share this story about him, I'm not talking about the, the motives of everyone else involved. The ministry as a whole was successful and he as an individual was successful, but as an individual being so successful, as an individual being so intellectual, as an individual being admired by many people, that's not what we need to seek for in life. He was a hugely successful man. And many of us in ministry would look at him and wonder, you know, I wish I could be as intellectual as that. I wish I could be as successful. This is a man who wrote 30 to 40 books in his ministry, delivered thousands of lectures, had a global influence. Don't be happy with success. Don't be happy with success. Some of us aspire to be big in our ministry. That's not what we should seek, and that's not what we should seek after. In Luke chapter 10, if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, in Luke chapter 10, we have there the passage of scripture where Jesus is commissioning his disciples. He's sending his disciples out. And before he sends them out, he's, he's giving them a little speech. It's kind of like when someone gets you know, ordained in, into the ministry, whether it's the deacon or an elder or a pastor gets ordained. There's always a little speech or a little sermon at their ordination service that commissions them to ministry. And as Jesus was commissioning his disciples and ordaining them to ministry, he, he gives a speech. And he tells them how things are going to go. He's going to say, you're going to heal, you know, heal the sick and so on, so on and so forth. And he says there in verse 19, I'm going to give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, nothing shall by any means hurt you. He tells them you're going to have power over the enemy power over the enemy. Imagine going out in your ministry and Jesus has already told you, you're going to have power over unclean spirits. You're going to have power over Satan himself. He will not be able to hold you down. That's a power that, that, that is just, wow, God ordained. God ordained. You're going to have success that no one's ever seen. People are going to come to you. They're going to be demon-possessed. They're going to be foaming at the mouth. And you're going to be able to look at them and say, get thee behind me, Satan. And the demon will disappear. And everyone's going to look, wow, where did that come from? Where did that come from? You're going to have power over evil spirits. If anyone has ever been around people that are demon-possessed or people that are involved in that ministry of casting out demons, You'll know that there's things that can happen. Grown men can be flung across the room. Supernatural powers can be displayed. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I'm giving you power. And the power I'm giving you is going to be more powerful than the enemy himself. And you can imagine the disciples looking around going, yeah, this is pretty good. This is, this is pretty good. We've got power over the demons. We've got power over the evil spirits. 
this is this is going to be exciting. Can you imagine going out into ministry and seeing stuff happening? And we're just going to look and point the finger and bam, the situation changes. This is going to be pretty good. And Jesus' disciples weren't old men at the time. It wasn't like they were mature, you could say, or, or even maybe of a life experience where they're able to handle this, this added um, responsibility or power or privilege that they had. I mean, these were young kids. Some of them were late teenagers. Some of them would have been early 20s, but they, 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 they weren't an old group of people. They, they were in those, those very formative years of life, those very impressionable years of life that they were in, where, where, where the mind is going through lots of changes and, and social pressures and all these things are going on. And they were at that young and that, 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 that delicate and that, that, that sensitive, so to speak, age. And, you know, you know, and Jesus, I'm going to give you this power. Wow. I mean, you know what it's like today when you give someone who's like young, young-ish, who hasn't had much authority in life, and you give them a position of power, and some of them have the maturity to handle it, and other ones don't. They just kind of either wilt under the pressure, or they just take it to too much extreme, and they start telling everyone what to do, and rubbing everyone up the wrong way. And Jesus is about to give his disciples some influence, and not influence, some power that they've never had before, that people senior to them don't have, that people with more education than them don't have, that people with more experience in spiritual, in the spiritual life and work of, of, of the people of God don't have. And Jesus said, I'm going to give this to you. I'm giving it to you. But don't be happy with success. Don't be happy with success. Then he says to them, verse 20, verse 20, Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not. That's an old King James way of saying, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. Nevertheless, don't be happy with this success. I'm about to give you power over the evil spirits, but don't rejoice in it. Don't rejoice in it. Don't celebrate that power. Don't rejoice in the success of your ministry. Don't rejoice in that success, but reading on. Nevertheless, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in that. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. He says, don't be happy with the success of your ministry and don't rejoice in the success of your ministry. But rather rejoice if your names are written in the books of heaven. That is where you should rejoice. If your name is written in the books in heaven, that is where you should don't care about the success. That's why the sermon is entitled, Don't Be Happy with Success. The fall of Ravi Zacharias is an extremely sad episode in the history of Christianity. Fortunately, he died. I don't know if he repented to God before he died, but what we do know for sure is he never apologized to his victims before he died and make restitution, made restitution to them. That we know for sure. His life is a sad story of someone who had great success in ministry. And it seemed like he left a legacy but the legacy was quickly spoiled by his own private life. 
don't be happy with success. And for us, yeah, maybe it's not an international media ministry. For us, maybe the biggest thing we, we aspire to is, to is to have that departmental leader's role in church. We want that. We want to be an elder, deacon, head deacon, head elder, youth leader, personal ministries leader, manager, boss. That's what we want. That's what we want. We seek after that position. We seek after that place. And when we get there, hmm, I've made it. Don't be happy with success. Don't rejoice. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Early on in my ministry or my education, I had to memorize some passages from, from, from this little book here called um, Cole Porter Ministry. I had to memorize some passages of this for a, a class I took in school. And one of the passages is from chapter 18. If you've never read chapter 18, Cole Porter Ministry, it's an excellent chapter. It's called Help in Every Difficulty. And, and it deals with issues of life, not just selling books, help in every difficulty. And, and the second paragraph, second section rather, not the second paragraph, there's a quotation we had to memorize, and it says this, our reward is not dependent upon our seeming success. Don't be happy with success. Our reward is not dependent upon our seeming success, but upon the spirit in which the work is done. And as a canvasser or a colporter, that's what we were reminded of all the time. It doesn't matter how many books you sell. It doesn't matter how many books you sell. That's not what your reward personally is based on. Your reward is based upon the spirit in which you do the work. I colported all my way through college or university, every single break, uh, summer break and winter break and spring break. Every single break I had, I was out there colporting and earning my way through school, selling books to pay off my school bill. And one thing I learned selling books was this. Spirituality on a personal level and the number of sales someone makes in a day, there's zero correlation between the two. You can have the most spiritual person in your group who was the lowest salesperson. Then you could have the least spiritual person, like least spiritual, like no spirituality. And they could have the highest sales, like highest in the whole group every day. I'm a reminder of that, that quote, our reward is not dependent upon our seeming success, but upon the spirit in which the work is done. Then it goes on and says, canvases or evangelists, you may not have the success you prayed for, but remember that you do not know and cannot measure the result of faithful effort. It's possible to have great outward results, but it leads to no personal eternal gain. It's possible to have little results in our, in our life and ministry, but it leads to an eternal gain in the salvation of our soul. Don't be happy with success. Success is not what matters, but it's having your name written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what matters. I think of Noah in the Bible, and Noah was a character who, who built an ark, and, and, and we often say he only saved his house, and, and yeah, he only saved eight people in his house, but the reality is Noah did at least save his house. Amen. Saved his family, all his children, and his children's wives and husbands. Which Lot didn't. Lot's two daughters came with him, but not their husbands. Noah saved his daughters, or his sons, 
and his daughter-in-laws and his wife. But all the people that worked on Noah's boat, we often look at Noah and say, you know, he wasn't a success. He, he, he ministered for 120 years. He had a message to preach of the, of the coming destruction of the world for 120 years and converted no one except his family. Numerically unsuccessful. Spiritually, in the grand scheme of eternity, hugely successful. His name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. When I think of Joseph, Joseph, what's the success of your ministry? Well, I'm a slave in Potiphar's house. How many Bible studies you do in Joseph? I don't know, not many. How many pieces of literature you giving out, Joseph? How many sermons are you preaching there, Joseph? Oh, oh, wow, you've gone to prison now. Oh, man. What happened to you? Doing any prison ministries? Got any Bible study groups going there? Small groups? Sermons? What's going on in prison, Joseph? Just living my life trying to be faithful. When you look at the story of Joseph's life, it's a story of someone. We, we don't have any record of any public ministry in his life. No public ministry. We don't have any record in Joseph up to the age of 30 of Joseph doing anything apart from once running from Potiphar's wife, getting put in prison, interpreting one dream. We don't have no other record of any public, sorry, of any, of any ministry he does in the prison, in the house, Bible study, sermon, nothing. But yet Joseph was living a life where his character was of such a, 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 um, a quality that it was eternal in nature. It would have been, if he had died then, written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Obviously, we know later in his life, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt and he gets all of these earthly accolades. But, but the point is, up to the age of 30, there's no public ministry. There's no success externally to Joseph's life. But he was living a life that was faithful. It wasn't successful, but it was faithful. It wasn't successful, but it was faithful. And in being faithful, he was honoring God. Daniel. How many Babylonians have you converted, Daniel? How many are baptized over there, Daniel? You got your mates with you. There's four of you there. You got a little huddle. How many of you baptized there in, in Babylon, Daniel? What's the result of your ministry, Daniel? Just living my life. What's the result of your ministry? What's the success, Daniel? You know the story of the greatest characters in the Bible? There's really not that much public success to their ministry. But their names are written in the Bible and we emulate their lives because of the character of who they were. That's why they're recorded in scripture. That's why they're written down there. It's not until Daniel is 85, 86, or 87 years old when there's been a change of government and you've got the Persian Empire that you have an external king who actually testifies to Daniel that his faith in God is noble and God is going to deliver him. Says your God who you serve continually, he will deliver you. And that's what we find at the very end of Daniel's life. External success conversions and baptisms we don't really have that with Daniel but we have the character of a man 
who honored God and his name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. When Ezra was returning back to, to um, Jerusalem, they've been in captivity. And in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, they're returning back to, to Jerusalem to go and rebuild the city. And the Bible says in Ezra chapter, chapter 7 and verse 10, if you turn there, Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, the Bible tells us that as they're returning back to um, Jerusalem, it says that Ezra, it's one of the most important verses in the book of Ezra. We talk about the decrees and all the people that went back to rebuild Jerusalem. But in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, it gives us the secret of the success. Yes, Ezra went back there. Yes, he did help rebuild the temple. Yes, he did help to restore and rebuild the city. Yes, he did do a great work uh, uh, along earthly guidelines or standards that have lasted. And he's, he's enshrined in history. But Ezra 7, verse 10 tells us why. Because it says in Ezra 7, verse 10, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Why was Ezra successful in his public ministry? Why was Ezra successful in the task that God had called him to do? Because before he went back to Jerusalem, before he embarked on the work, the Bible says he prepared his heart before God to seek the Lord, to do the statutes of God, to obey the law and to honor God. He prepared his heart. And when he prepared his heart, God said, I'll follow you. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, we've got this story, kind of this imagery is painted of the end of the world and, 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 and Jesus is there. And it's kind of, the, you know, he, he, he's, he's basically painting a picture in our minds of a conversation that could happen at the end of the world. A conversation that could happen. A, a, a haunting conversation that could happen at the end of the world. And it says in verse 20, he talks about by their fruits, Ezra, John, Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, yeah, by their fruit you shall know them, verse 20. Okay, he lays the groundwork. Verse 21, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my father. He says, hey, not everyone who says it will do it. Then in verse 22, he says, uh, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I'll say to them, I never knew you. Many will say, Lord, we've done publicly and we have success. There is fruit of our ministry. What's the problem? Just because you have success in casting out demons doesn't mean your name is written in the lamb's book of life god will use you doesn't mean god's going to save you don't be happy with success rather pray that your name is in the lamb's book of life like ezra prepare your heart to seek god like ezra Prepare your heart as you're doing the ministry God has called you to do. That as you do it, your heart is changed. If you've had success in your ministry, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But praise the Lord for the people that you've saved, not for yourself. Not for yourself. You only have to look at the stories of missionaries who went to the mission field. Most of them, like the characters in the Bible, were not successful. In their initial work, it's only after they left sometimes or after they died that the fruits of their labor started to, to multiply and grow. 
want you to turn your Bible to the last text for us today. It's in Daniel chapter, Daniel chapter 12. And in Daniel chapter 12, we have another text that deals with the, uh, the book of life, Daniel chapter 12. And in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, And at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince which stands for the people, children of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such, such as never was since there was a nation. It's just talking about the end of the world. And I believe this time is coming. And I believe this time is coming soon. When the Bible says there'll be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Then it says, and at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone that is found written in the book. God at the end is going to deliver his people. And he's only going to deliver the people, the Bible says, who are written in the book. He's not going to deliver the people that have the biggest social media following. He's not going to deliver the people that have the largest Bible study on social media. He's not going to deliver the people that have the most views on their YouTube videos. He's not going to deliver the people that have the most followers on Twitter. He's not going to deliver the people that have the most people in a small group that have baptized the most people. He's not going to deliver the people that go to the largest church. He's not going to deliver the people that have attended church the longest. He is not going to deliver all those people. The Bible says he's going to deliver those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. Success in life. And success in ministry is not what matters to God. He makes the stones cry out. What God is concerned about and what God wants and needs is the conversion and the changing of your heart. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice, however, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If it's your desire to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life, I just want to invite you to, to raise your hand wherever you may be sitting now or, or to just write your, your commitment in the chat of the YouTube or the Facebook or wherever you're watching and just say, Lord, write my name there. Lord, write my name there as a sign of commitment to God and to others. That that's a decision that you want to make. Lord, I don't want success. I want my name in the Lamb's book of life. Let's bow our heads as we close with a prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would bless us and be with us. That nothing may stand between us and you and even those of us who, who are living good lives, so to speak, on the outside and, and we're active in ministry and all the other things that, that we, we hear we're supposed to do. May our motives be pure. May our hearts be converted. And may our names be written in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, to those who've raised their hands, to those who made the decision, Lord, that they, they don't care about success in an earthly view. They just want to have a character fashioned after you and a name written in your book of life. Bless us, Lord, to that end, that you can deliver us when that day comes, we pray in Jesus' name.